Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, good morning and welcome to June 25th. How many times have I said in the last three years uh, that if you wrote a script about uh, the current state of our political affairs, uh, no one, people would say it's absurd. That's absurd. I mean, nothing like that would really happen. Uh, How many times have I said (laughs) that uh, truth these days really is stranger than fiction? And um, I bring this all up because our guest uh, is unique, uniquely excuse me, qualified to address both uh, truth and fiction. Uh, John Dedekis was a journalist for 45 years, and uh, presumably that meant he dealt with reality. And then uh, at some point, apparently, he said to hell with that and uh, jumped the fence to to write novels, mystery, suspense, thriller kinds of novels, page-turner novels. And um, I'm delighted that he's joining us today. Hi, John. Hi, Lynn. <laughs> nice to hear you. So, what got into you that you made <laughs> that jump? Was it that the reality was becoming so absurd that you wanted to take refuge in your own imagination? Well, no, it's not quite as neat as that. I think I think both you and I went into journalism because life was absurd, and we wanted to chronicle that. Um, <laughs> in my case, I was a writer at CNN back in the late '80s, and uh, one of the editors I worked with said, "You, you know, you'd be a great copy editor." What he meant was, you'd be a great warm body to replace me, uh, so I can get a better shift. And uh, so, sure enough, I. I no, he got the cushy shift. I did overnights for the next seven years, and I discovered that editing is tedious. It's not creative in the same way that reporting is, and so that's when I started to play around with writing fiction. So I really started to write a character who was a journalist way back in the 90s. It took 10 years to get the agent that I got, but by the time I left CNN in 2013, I'd, uh, I'd written my third novel, and so it, it, it just basically evolved that way. So the book you're referring to is Fake. That's the most recent one that came out uh, in, in the fall, and I started writing it when Trump was elected. Yeah, I can't imagine where that title came from, Fake. <laughs> Jeez. So here's the thing, though. You write uh, in the voice of a woman, a, f- a young woman, a female, and you're an old guy. I happen hey, to know because we were. Hey, hey, we were. We both, I should tell the audience, got our start in uh, broadcasting uh, at about the same time in Madison, Wisconsin. And I can hear your Wisconsin. I can hear, and I bet you can hear mine. <laughs> That was constant voice, right? Well, I I usually call Land's End to get my uh, Wisconsin fit. <laughs> so, you know, what kind of appropriation is that for a man to talk in a woman's voice? Your your main character is a, a, a woman named Lark Chadwick, and how how did you have the 
I'm going to say the the gall to think you could inhabit a female's head. Well, before I answer that, and I, and I don't know what your answer is going to be, but uh, <laughs> uh, did I, did I get it? Do I get it? Pretty well, pretty pretty well, pretty well. She's a tough cookie. <laughs> well, here's here's how it came about. When I first started writing fiction, someone said you should write in a way that stretches who you are. And I'd never been a woman, at least not in this life. So I did it, and I discovered, at least initially, that it wasn't as difficult as I expected. And I think it was because, you know, emotions aren't gender-specific. We all have the exact same emotions, fear, anger, joy. It's just that, in my experience, women are more articulate about it. They're more willing to express emotions. They're more nuanced in the palette of emotions they can draw from. So I basically just put a skirt on and, and wrote, you know, and, and wrote myself. I mean, Lark is really me with a skirt on. Although I should say, I was at a book signing once and a woman, uh, she, she, it was a book talk and she was in the back of the room and she raised her hand and she said, what do you wear when you write? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah, you put on high heels and a... No, and I, make... <laughs> I You know, I, she, she should have followed up because the... the he said, you know, it would have been, you know, his lace part of it. And no, I mean, it's probably in my jammies for the most part. But uh, um, no, here's, here's the thing. I was at CNN for 25 years. And so that's about 25 years worth of young women in their early to mid-20s who would tell me their stories about their yeah. bosses and their families and their boyfriends. And, huh. you know, I would just listen to their stories. And, and pretty soon that becomes part of your subconscious. That's interesting. So and it helps to and it helps to have beta readers, you know, readers who will read early drafts of the manuscript. So a lot of those women read the manuscript and would tell me what what's working and what's not. So okay, this just came into my head out of it seems to me, I think it was in your book that I read uh that um television studios are are kept cold for the, yeah. you know, equipment. Yeah, right. And, okay, so here's my question. If TV studios are cold, then why are all these beautiful young women who habituate? (laughs) Yes, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah, because when I was in TV, if it was winter, we weren't wearing, you know, sleeveless Tops but and, Lynn, but Lynn, this yeah. is before Roger Ailes. This is before Roger Ailes. But okay, so that's Fox, and he did that. How come CNN, MSNBC, and everybody else immediately followed suit? Well, uh, I can tell you from having been at CNN when Fox came along. Um, I think for a long time that really threw us off our game because um, Fox at the time was covering car chases and warehouse fires, and so we started doing that too, and. That was, and so, you know, because they were getting the ratings, and it's all about ratings, let's be honest about that. Okay. And so I think it just is, you you want to do what you think is going to attract the eyeballs, and skin attracts eyeballs. Gosh, that makes me, you know, okay, and that's why Donald Trump is president. Pretty much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We need there are a lot of, there are. Yes, there are a lot of reasons why he's president and why he shouldn't be president. But uh, but he's a, a he's a, a constant car chase, train wreck, you name it. And yep. 
your former employer, covered him like a blanket and oh, did so. not cover his yep. uh, his competitor, Hillary Clinton, in the same oh, manner. God. Oh, exactly. I mean, I can remember, and I'm trying to think if I, I was not there at the time, I don't think. I That's true. In 2013, but right. you know, but but even before I left, you know, he was a regular guest on the Situation Room, and so and and sometimes oh. we'd say, "Wolf, this guy is a train wreck," and he'd go, "Well, but he's you know an important person, um, and he's good TV." I, and that's not a quote from Wolf, <laughs> but he is good TV. And yeah, I can remember watching. There was there was uh, um, um, they were doing one of those shout fest panels. And Hillary was giving a speech somewhere, but they were talking about Trump and the live shot was an empty podium and the front was, you know, Trump to speak soon. So they're wow. ignoring Hillary. They're waiting for Trump. Right. And because Trump was good TV. So I hope the people at CNN and all the others realize now that now that they are fake news and now there's been this inexorable erosion of trust in journalism, that they brought that on themselves in large yeah. part. Sure. I think that's true. And I think like, for instance, the, the uh, Tulsa rally, um, oh. if I'm not mistaken, I don't think CNN covered it wall to wall. Um, and, and, you know, they were there, they covered it. There was certainly news coming out of it. But I, if I'm not mistaken, and, and I and I'm and I have to say I don't know for sure, but if I'm not mistaken, um, I think Fox was the only one who carried it live wall to wall. Yeah. Oh dear. So do you think? I mean, I'll get. I'm going to get back to the book in a second. But do you think that media has learned any lesson? Because I don't think they know how. You, you know, you were at the White House in the. You know covering the White House at one point. You can't cover this White House like you always covered a White House. It is not even in the same category. Um, and yet they're seemingly going through the same kinds of, uh, you know, here's how we cover the White House. This is what we do. It's, I don't think there's been an adjustment. Well, well let's think about that because in one sense, I mean, I did a piece uh, on the white, on the basically the press corps versus the president. This is when Reagan was president, and uh, and it was basically the White House press corps versus the president. Mm -hmm. And um, I interviewed several people for it, including Sam Donaldson. And Sam, who was the White House correspondent for ABC, I think he summed it up best. He said, "It's the press secretary's job to make an administration look." Uh, to, to cast the administration's policies in, if not the best light, uh, the perfect light, if not the best light. Our mm -hmm. job as reporters is to find out what's really going on. And so that has always been what a reporter's job is, is to find out what's really going on and to cultivate sources within the administration. Um, but here's the thing. Trump knows how now to bypass his press secretary. And with Twitter, he reaches 80 million people with two thumbs. Um, and, you know, people have said, well, why do you guys cover his tweets? Because it's news. It's the president. And so, uh, so really how things are covered uh, haven't changed that much because 
you still need sources inside the administration who will who are willing to talk. Often they're willing to talk off the record or anonymously. But um, you know that we still know what's going on in the room where it happened. Uh, in the room the, where it happened, where'd you get that little phrase? Yeah, from Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right from Hamilton. <laughs> oh dear God. Okay, I want to go back to the book, by the way, is fake. It is a page turner. You know what else I love about it? I don't think there's a chapter longer than six pages. Thank you. Something. I mean, I try to look, the goal of a writer is to get the reader to keep turning pages, and that's <laughs> not the life. So thank you. I, 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 I wrote it for people with short attention spans. Yeah, well, but you spend well, that's because you probably have one because you spent a career in television journalism. Oh, exactly. I mean, I can look, you and I worked at competing stations. I worked at the NBC affiliate in Madison, WMTV. You worked at the Big Dog in Madison, WISC, the CBS affiliate. And 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 we I think that I ha- I remember screaming arguments in the newsroom over five seconds. If I five <laughs> seconds, no, you probably had the same experience. And Although had- we had back then, John, we were given much more time than reporters are given now. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And, oh and my there God. was a there was a slogan that the Wisconsin Department of Tourism uh, came up with. It was a bumper sticker: "Escape to Wisconsin." And so one of the people in our newsroom uh, cut it uh, in two and, ha- and and pasted in the in the control room. Escape to WISC. <laughs> <laughs> and some of my coworkers ended up working at uh, at Channel Three. Huh? Hey, I wanted to ask you. Know, there's a. I'm here in Pittsburgh. There are a lot of Madison people who started in Madison in Pittsburgh uh, television. And I'm wondering if you knew any of them. Dave Crowley? Oh, absolutely. Dave and I worked on the same. He was the anchor for one of the shows that uh, I, I was an editor for. And, and so Dave I, and I know each other very well. Okay. I thought, I thought you would definitely know Dave. By the way, he is not employed right now, and he is suing the CBS mm-hmm. affiliate here. Yes, we've had a conversation. About oh, you have. You're all. You're oh, totally yeah. on. Okay, and then it might be a little after your time. Ken Rice. That I, that name does not ring a bell. Okay, he was WISC, and he's without a doubt the best uh, TV anchor in, in town. So anyway, enough of that. I want to get back also to the book, um, and this is this is what I'm just saying. As I read the book, there were times things jumped out at me, and I said, "Really." Is that true? And so I have to ask you. I have right. three or four of them here. Right. Let's see. That on uh, At one point you say that whenever the president travels, a small cadre of print, broadcast, and wire service reporters tag along to keep an eye on the president in case something horrible happens. It's called the body watch. Right. That's true. So some reporter will say, ah, damn, I can't come home for dinner. I'm on the body watch. Well, they would call it the travel pool, but, you know, uh, um, that's that's also subtext for it. I've, I've heard it ta- I've heard it called that, but it's officially the travel pool. Yeah, but but they never it, which is to say you always want to have a camera yep. on him. Yep. Yep. And 
And in a motorcade, the camera is rolling the whole time. Huh. Well, I guess we've learned that from reality, too. Yep. Okay, here's another one. This has to do in the book when they go, uh, the president. The, the book has a, um, ha- has a, uh, a hottie for president and has a murdered first lady. Can I say that much? I mean, it's just. Yeah, that's the first page. <laughs> oh, okay. That's true. <laughs> I guess I can then. And, and at one point, the president travels overseas. And of course, then the media uh, go along. And you say this offhandedly. Presidential trips are notorious for igniting whirlwind romances, some of which later doom marriages. Mm -hmm. I would love to know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know this from personal experience. No, but Um, you're not going to name names either, are you? No, well, no. But this is just, I mean, what is... I think that the Secret Service has, I mean, I, this is where I heard it first, you know, wheels up, wing, rings off. Um, <laughs> You're kidding. Wheels. No. Oh, my God. But that's, I mean, that's not universally the case. There are plenty of people who are part of the White House press corps who are devoted to their wives and uh, <laughs> or husbands sure, for that matter. I'm sure. But, I'm sure. you know, but there, but there is canoodling and, that, you know, when you're when you're on the road, things happen. And that's not just true in journalism. It's true of course. just about any profession. This is what happened when they let women out of the kitchen. You know, nothing but trouble. <laughs> but here's the one that blew me away that I did not know and you couldn't have made up. John Scally, for those right. who don't, um, are older People as old as me will remember him. He was a, a very uh, good reporter for a- ABC. ABC. Yeah. ABC, yeah. Yeah, John Scally. You say that John Scally played a role, a big role, in the Cuban Missile Crisis and avoiding nuclear war. Right. Is that true? As far as I know, it is. I mean, that was... Cause well, my 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 memory is a little hazy, but uh, you know Khrushchev was a, a sort of a Trump in many ways. He was very unpredictable, emotional, and there were um, there was the public Khrushchev that uh, was pretty bombastic, and there was also a private Khrushchev that mm-hmm. was all, who was also alarmed at how close they were coming to nuclear war, and so there was a back channel that was. Uh, uh, opened between the uh, Kennedy administration and the, the Soviet government, and and Scali, who, if I remember correctly, was the State Department correspondent. Yes, I think so. Right. right. Met with met privately, and I think at a Georgetown restaurant with his count with a uh, uh, with a, a deputy foreign minister, or maybe it was the foreign minister, and so they were able to diffuse the crisis by having back-channel conversations. Who did somebody, as far as you, you know this story, had somebody from the White House asked John Scally to do that? I, if I remember correctly, I think that Scally was approached by the Soviets. Oh and, my God. Uh, and, wow. and he then went to the Kennedy administration. I, you could probably Wikipedia this. Yeah, right. I, I guess I'll have to, but I, you know, I thought, what? I did not know that. That's, 
I love when you're reading a book of fiction and you're learning stuff, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's why I think a lot of people like historical fiction because they get to you take a lot yes. of swipes at Trump in this. Uh, you do because the president in this in fake is a post Trump president. Mm-hmm. And so you you say on a number of occasions uh, that since Trump's presidency, this and that, and and none of it's good because it has to do with the impact on um, news and the whole idea of fake news and uh, the fact that uh, Trump has eroded uh, an extraordinary uh, amount of public trust in all institutions, but in media. And you see where that gets us. So, exactly. I mean, you, you do. Um, I don't see, is that a Pandora's box? There's no going back. I mean, you know, you would say in a marriage, once trust is lost, you know, mm-hmm, there's no getting mm-hmm. it. So how, what do we do? Whoa, that's, that's really an important question. And I mean, I'm an optimist and I, I always feel that there's hope, but um, we are in a grave moment yeah. and we we can see that when, you know, the COVID hit and when the, you know, the whole race relations issue has blown up, um, you know, things are much more polarized politically because of institutions, not just journalism, but, you know, the, the right. CDC, you know, the NIH, um, people are getting, I mean, I was at a, <laughs> I was at a book signing in Southern Virginia uh, not too long ago, and a woman was going off on me about fake news. And I mm-hmm. said, I asked her, I said, where did you get your, your news? She said, Breitbart. And, oh, dear. <laughs> and my jaw dropped. And before I could say anything, she said, well, I have to have my opinions reinforced. And I, uh, and she I said, said that? You know, I mean, she just flat out said that. And I said, wow. actually, you need to have your opinions informed, and then you, you know, can decide <sighs> what your opinion is. And but that's where we are. I mean, I've got relatives who, you know, don't read the newspaper, don't watch reputable news organizations. You know, they believe Trump. That's what they say. You know, I'll believe what Trump says before I believe, you know, what you guys say. So it's, okay, it's where that's where we are. So in your book, you have like a. Uh, a Breitbart-like outlet, uh, you call it Media Bash, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. um, so they put out a, a, a story, and and you have a line. I'm going to read it to you. Um, wait. Um, well, first of all, ever since Donald Trump's presidency, the reliability of journalism has been undermined so much that more trust is put into narratives that mm-hmm. reinforce the fake news bias. Mm-hmm. What, does, what, what are you saying there? Well, may I read you a quick two-minute excerpt? Yeah. That, 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 and, and you'll remember the scene. Um, this takes place about two-thirds of the way into the book. So, um, And we know Lark is, is at a restaurant, an outdoor restaurant journalist. And, you know, her life is basically a mess at this moment uh, because she is this, uh, she's the victim of this fake news story. And we, as the reader, know it's not true. Um, you know, the president is sort of like Justin Trudeau. The, pre- the yeah. Russian president is sort of like Trump. So I've right. kind of flipped roles. 
And the allegation is that that Lark is having an affair with the president. We as the reader know that it's not true, but there are people who do believe it, and it can get dangerous for the reporter. So as Lark is journaling, there's a guy watching her from another table. And as she packs up and is getting ready to go, he strikes up a conversation with her. And so this takes place after they've had some back and forth. And he says, I just figured it out, he said, his face brightening. What's that? You're what's-her-name, the president's girlfriend. Now I was intrigued. What gives you that impression? Hey, it's all over the Internet. He dug into his pocket, extracted his cell phone, and did some serious scrolling. Here it is. He thrust his phone toward me so that I could see the media bash shot of the president with his hand on my shoulder. You're Lark Chadwick, Miss Fake News herself, he said proudly. So glad to have made your day, I stood. Me too. Say, is he any good in bed? I think we're through here, Jake. Hell, we're just getting started. His expression darkened and hardened. Why do you liberal media types hate this country so much? You don't even know me, Jake. Oh, I know your type. While I'm getting shot at in Afghanistan, you're banging the president, as his wife is dying, no less. I should have walked away. Instead, I took a deep breath, pulled my chair over to his wrought iron table, sat down, folded my arms on top of the table, and leaned toward him. A minute ago, I said, you're trying to pick me up trying to impress me with how rich you are, trying to flatter me about how hot I look. And then when you realize I'm a journalist, you judge me based on information that's not even true. But do you even... He grabbed me by the forearm and squeezed so hard it hurt. Ow! He stuck his face in front of mine, lowered his voice, gritted his teeth and hissed, listen to me, you stuck-up snowflake little bitch. In Afghanistan, I killed better people than you. Let go of me, I demanded, my stern, even tone matching his. We were eyeball to eyeball. He tightened his grip. You need to be taught a lesson. His eyes were wild, crazed. I'll stop there. Yeah. That's why, that's why it's, that's what I mean by uh, how people are believing whatever they see on the internet and an innocent person can become the victim. So, okay, that brings me to a question of why um, journalists, I mean, reporters, uh, take CNN reporters now on Mm -hmm. the job. Yeah. Yeah. They're in in danger. Yeah. Do they feel like they're in danger? Yes. I think I I can't, I can't speak to this authoritatively, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that, um, you know, the reporters in the field, especially if they're tethered to a live shot, you know, there's security there keeping an eye on, you know, people around them. And I've had friends who have worked for local affiliates um, who've covered Trump rallies, and they have had to have police escort them to their car because it's such an angry crowd. Well, and, and the fact is police have been attacking journalists with the Black Lives Matter protests. Yes. Yeah. I mean, journalists are really – we've known that internationally journalism can be a very, very dangerous 
job to get into. But here in this country, (laughs) we always felt like that wasn't the case here. American journalists were being killed by the government or disappeared or this or that. And now we could happen. It could happen, especially if Trump is elected for a second term. God in heaven, please. <laughs> and I mean, look, I, I for the for, for 45 years that I was a journalist, my kids did not know how I voted um, mm. because I, I really was stringent about, you know, keeping my opinions to myself. And you know this. I mean, a good journalist, and it's okay to have an opinion. The trick is, and what, what separates the professional from the amateur is that mm-hmm. you know what your opinion is and you guard against it. Uh, uh, you guard against injecting that into your copy and exactly. you do your best to find people who oppose your opinion. And, you know, I think the best job is to find someone who is as articulate uh, uh, in opposition as you are in the way you feel about something, because that's what makes a democracy strong is the interplay of ideas that the friction that goes back and forth, because what is it? Iron sharpens iron. Uh, yes, but what if, and here's here's what's happened now because of the Breitbarts and because of, I mean, some of these so-called news organizations are purveyors of total falsehood. So right. so now um, a, uh, a journalist who is trying to be a good ethical journalist I, do they? I mean, you you can't pretend that the other side is talking reality or truth. So the the both sides paradigm doesn't always work now. You can't right. give that other side more yeah. exposure. Well, you you can't. Yes, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, journalism is in a, a new area now. It's, yeah. Um, you know, they talk about the false equivalency. And I suppose that probably a good example of a false equivalency would be to interview a scientist who feels that there's uh, such a thing as uh, uh, climate change, and then you mm-hmm. go to someone else who's part of the Flat Earth Society. Right, um, right. You know, I mean, that's not a fair, that's not, that's not an equivalent. You know, you're always going to find somebody who's opposed, but, um, you know, there. Uh, I'm still in favor. I mean, there are still people who don't believe in, in climate change. So, you know, that opinion still needs to be explored. But I think the point you're making is that now, I mean, everybody with a cell phone is a journalist because we <laughs> yeah, have right. followers. And when you hit send or you hit post, you publish. But there's no, there's no editor sitting on your shoulder saying, how do you know that's true? Where did you get that? You know, that's right. I mean, that's What's you, your source? Do you have? I, yeah, yeah, you. Exactly. I mean, those of us who went to journalism school, who understood that there were ethics involved, um, we have no more of a stage than someone who sees, I don't know, journalism as just throwing crap out there. Exactly. Which means then that the you know we all need to be much more discerning news consumers. Yeah, uh, but we're know, media we, illiterates. I, <laughs> I really yeah. think that media literacy should be taught from kindergarten on, that it is probably the most important subject now, that people, young kids, and because the adults are already, they're lost, but mm-hmm. young kids need to be able to discern what is news, yes. what yeah. is 
what is not, yeah. what is opinion, what yeah. is... Do you remember Paul Harvey when he did his like oh, radio yeah. stuff? News okay, news he was he was a genius at blurring. Mm-hmm. He he mm-hmm. would go from a news story to mm-hmm. a little bit of opinion and then yeah. blur into a commercial that he was doing. Yes, and oh. I thought it was brilliant, but yeah. but insidious, insidious. Now people don't know where the lines are. It's just all news is entertainment. Yeah. Oh, it is. It totally is. I, I taught, I was an adjunct professor at the university of Maryland journalism school. And, um, you know, there were some of my students who were, if I'm not mistaken, they were majoring, majoring in political commentary, something like that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's like before you start spouting your opinion, you need to have some chops of, you know, in terms wow. of news gathering, you know, journal, good journal, you know, the, the, the best op-ed uh, columnists, uh, I'm thinking at the New York Times, yeah. you know, they were in the trenches as they reporters, were reporters for decades, right. you know, and they still bring that, uh, that, uh, those, those skills to their opinion reporting. Their opinions are informed as opposed to just blathering, you know, from, from some sort of ideology. Oh God, God help us! You say you're an mm-hmm. optimist. I'm a, I'm a person. I'm a person who sighs every, every, know. you know. Ugh. I know I, I do too. Yeah. So, um, okay, I can't let you go without asking you about Wolf Blitzer. Um, you, what'd you say? You love him? I said, oh, I do. Oh, oh, that, whatever. I don't, but I because I, to me, I mean, he doesn't. I don't get how he got where he got. I'm going to be oh. obnoxious. Here. Oh, I can tell you. I can tell. Well, you. because he ahead. doesn't look all that much like a like an anchor, and he doesn't sound. He doesn't have the voice mm-hmm. of an anchor, and there's not a lot of personality discernible on um, mm-hmm. screen, which I guess for an anchor is okay. Um, okay. So, what are you going to tell me? He, he well, did the. I mean, he he has the chops. Was- well, but here's here's what you're you're falling into the same trap that we uh, we criticize, and that is, you know, we wonder why you know women are wearing sleeveless uh, yeah. outfits on TV when the studio is so cold, um, because you know there's an attraction factor there. And you are right, Wolf is not a pretty boy, blow dried anchor. Well, let um, me tell you, a woman. See, but men are given an exception. No woman. Oh, yeah. It's a would be standard. able to be Wolf Blitzer. Right. It's a double standard. Thank no, you. No doubt okay. about it. That's all uh, I want to say. Yeah. But Wolf does have the chops. And yeah. the story there is he'd been, he was a newspaper reporter. You know, he was, the, I think, the, uh, for the Jerusalem Post. He was at Reuters for a while. Um, he did a stint, I think, at NBC Radio. But, you know, all of that is behind the scenes. And he came to CNN, and he attributes Saddam Hussein with his big break because Wolf was the Pentagon correspondent for CNN, which was still at the time called Chicken Noodle News. And um, the, uh, uh, he had told Wolf, uh, Wolf told his wife, you know, honey, this is just not working. You know, and, and his wife said, Wolf, just give it, a, you know, give it a few more weeks or a few more months. And then Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and Wolf was on the air uh, every hour on the hour as the White House cor- as the uh, Pentagon correspondent, and later as the White House correspondent with the name Wolf Blitzer. 
So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he's a household name. But it, it helps that he's not just an empty suit. This guy, you know, he could ad-lib the show. He's that smart. He's got mm-hmm. connections, and he plays it straight. I have no idea what his politics are, and I work with him every day for seven years. You're kidding. I don't know. And, and I've seen him, uh, you know, his, in fact, I've heard that he doesn't vote. Um, Do you know, I, I know a reporter who doesn't vote, and I think that's carrying things too far. <laughs> they yeah, don't, I mean, yeah, yeah, doesn't vote because he doesn't want to in any way have, and what? Mm-hmm. That's unbelievable. Is, well, I mean, and I know several people at CNN who are, uh, who feel that way. And really? uh, they don't want, yeah, because I think they feel that subconsciously, you know, that would affect their coverage. And fine, if they don't want to vote, they, they certainly have a, a platform. So mm-hmm. they're incredibly influential. So they see that as their public service. So in Wolf's case, I've seen him, he's, he is, I think, more than anything interested in accuracy. And I've seen him um, you know, everybody is entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And I've seen him interview people who start misrepresenting the facts. And whether they're from the left or the right, he will interject correction. Um, you know, he will correct the record because that's what's most important. Okay, and one I last. To, what? I have what? to tell you, he is much funnier off camera than he is on camera. Aww. He's a very funny guy. Yeah, you wouldn't know that from... So um, I look at those reporters at CNN and I can not imagine the exhaustion now, Mm. the um, I think they're all going to have post-traumatic stress if they don't already Um, Mm. between Trump, the pandemic, now the the protests um, and the fact that they're working unbelievable hours on these, the biggest stories of, uh, you know, their lifetimes. I, and it never stops. Mm -hmm. I can't, I don't, I mean, I just doing my little hour a day have felt burnout from having to deal with this. How the hell are they doing it? I wonder. Well, that's a good that's a good question. But you know, it's not just this era. In fact, last night was the 40th anniversary reunion of CNN, and we did it online. And uh, we had, you know, there was the big group, you know, 700 people or so, and um, Katie Couric was there, and Bernie Shaw, and you know, a bunch of people oh, like wow. that. Maria Maria Ressa, Maria, you know, she's the Philippine journalist who is uh, in the crosshairs of the Duterte. Oh government. no! Yes. And I was one of her editors. And so what? She, she was just, she was ch- she's going to jail. Well, it's not clear yet, but uh, they're still fighting it. But yeah, oh her, her life is literally in danger yes. uh, because of what could happen here. But anyway, what we were, we also had a breakout room with the Situation Room uh, reunion. And uh, I heard Wolf talking with one of the producers who was with him uh, for, the t- for the Oklahoma City bombing. And uh, Wolf was talking about the child care center that, you know, that was bombed yeah. and, and all those kids who were killed. Yeah. And he said, do you remember that? He said to the producer and she said, I remember it every day. And um, it's that post-traumatic stress that happens 
for every reporter who has to cover some sort of a disaster. But there's actually an organization called the Dart Center, and they uh, uh, are in existence to help reporters uh, process that kind of stuff that they go through. Wow. Well, it's been so much fun talking to you. And Likewise. I want, yeah. And I want to know how people, how my audience can get that page turner you wrote. Uh, where well, where do they get fake? Okay. Well, let's see. First, they need to know my name. I suppose that helps. And I'll yeah. spell it because it's one of those tricky Greek names. Uh, first name is John. That's just J-O-H-N. Last name is Dedekis, and it's spelled D as in dog, E, D as in dog, A, K-I-S as in Sam, and that's my website, johndedakis.com. So that'll probably be your best place to go, you know, to find out about the books. And I okay. think I link to Amazon. Um, you can get it. You the Bookstores carry it, but you probably have to order it. Uh, independent bookstores, I encourage you to, you know, check, check, if you've got an indie, indie bookstore in your hometown, um, you know, go and uh, and check that out. They can order it for you as well. Oh, you're a good man, John Dedakis. <laughs> a good, better than Amazon. You're a good man. Do the yeah, give the independent bookstore, John Dedakis. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Me too. This was a treat, Lynn. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 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 Well, well, well. Honest to Pete. Could you hear the Wisconsin accent a little bit? <laughs> uh, wow. So, guys, um, I can't let you go without uh, without getting into some of the news of the day. Lord almighty. God help us, huh? Um, I'm going to uh, read... Oh, you know, wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. I'm having trouble making a transition here. Uh, the the hearing uh, yesterday, uh, I don't know if you uh, happen to see any of it, but it was uh, the justice, uh, the, why can't I think of what the hell that committee's called? Uh, the Judiciary Committee, for Christ's sake, House Judiciary Committee. And you had two Justice Department officials testifying about the outrageous politicization, that's a word I can never say, of the, uh, the Justice Department under, under Barr. And, um, and some of the testimony was just sickening. I happened to watch some of uh, it, and I happened to be watching when one of these senior people, a man named uh, Elias, John Elias, uh, was talking, and all of a sudden there's this noise. You can you can hear and this is sort of like like that like a noise and it was one of the Republicans just banging on the desk 
for no other reason than to disrupt the testimony. And when asked by the uh, chair um, to stop, he refused. When asked by others who said, I can't hear the witness, will you please stop? And he said something like, there's no rule against making noise. This is the Republican uh, from Texas, Louis Gohmert, as vile a character as ever. But watching that really made my blood run cold because this is what has happened to the Congress of the United States that members of it feel that they can behave like unruly children in the midst of serious, serious, serious testimony. It's extraordinary. And you know what's weird is I read a, an account of this hearing in the New York Times today. It's a big, gave, gave it lots of space. And nowhere did it mention this outrageous behavior. I mean, I was stunned. I was stunned. Nowhere did it call out Gomert. Also, another Republican, the uh, ranking Republican on the committee, that loathsome Jim Jordan of Ohio, the one who had been a wrestling coach at uh, Ohio State, who looked the other way while the doctor there molested uh, untold numbers of um, young athletes. Uh, that representative, Jim Jordan, the one who never wears um, a, a jacket. Jim Jordan sitting right next to the, the chairman of the committee, Jerry Nadler. did not have a mask on. He was sitting right next to him. Did not have a mask mask on while while Nadler did throughout Jordan like talking right at him on occasion. Meanwhile, I know, I'm sure Jim Jordan knows that Jerry Nadler's wife is battling cancer. Her immune system is totally compromised. Jim Jordan has to know that. I know it. And that he would put that woman in Mortal jeopardy. 
is so disgusting, despicable. These people have got to be just destroyed in November. I mean, this has to be an election unlike any other election. It has to be that much of what's called a change election. And on the front page of the New York Times today, there, and I hate to do these polls, but I mean, my God, we could be heading for that kind of slate cleaning, um, absent whatever shenanigans uh, the Republicans have for mucking up the vote, and along with their um, allies in, in Russia and, and other nations serving Trump. Um, but in the latest polls, and this is a poll uh, of registered voters by the New York Times and Siena College, Biden holds a 14-point lead nationally. And people were asked, if the election were held today, whom would you vote for? Well, 14% more said Joe Biden. And it's the breakdowns, the demographics that blow your mind. Of course, more women, 55% of women said Biden. But Biden also won men. That's unheard of. Men, white men, especially, vote for Republicans. And in fact, the only, the only group, groups that Trump had even the slightest lead in were people from 50 to 64. He doesn't even get 65 and older. Biden has them. Biden has every demo but 50 to 64. And Trump wins that by just one point. So it's a, it's a wash. And the same with just white voters. Trump is leading there by just one point, which is a wash. The only one where you see a big Trump lead is whites with no college. Trump leads 53 to 34. Biden leads blacks. Biden leads Hispanics. Biden leads white college educated. He leads independents by a huge number. He leads moderates by a huge number. He leads 18 to 34 year olds, huge numbers, 35 to 49, big numbers. 65 and older, my God, 
those are tr- if this continues and if we keep it up and if Trump keeps it up because this is him being Trump and people are turning away in disgust, in fear, in exhaustion, you name it. There was an interesting piece that I'm going to try to find um, that, and I can't tell you where it came from, michiganadvance.com. But it's a very long piece. And it's somebody who's trying to ascertain why people voted for him. I mean, other than the usual suspects. And they came up with this that actually dovetails with what my brother had always said. He has always said that people voting for Trump were really just voting to stick it to people like me, people who are liberal or educated or in the professional class, people who they think look down on them. Okay, here's what this person says. What I've been struck most by in talking to some of these Trump voters over the years, and this is a person who's really, I mean, immersed in trying to figure out what is it that they were thinking, hoping, wanting. Okay, one of the things I've been struck by is that they didn't expect Trump to make them rich, they didn't think they would personally get much out of a Trump presidency. They were, in fact, confident that politicians didn't really care about people like them and that good jobs were not coming back. They didn't even, didn't even really believe that things would be better for their children or their grandchildren because of Trump. But they did think Trump would hurt the right people, at the very least. Oh, that's exactly what my brother's been saying forever. This is the contempt of a big swath of America. It's white. It's not as well-educated. It's suffering tough times in every way. They have no trust in government to do anything, but they love the fact that Trump was viewed with absolute dis- 
discussed by people like us. They didn't think he was going to help them. They were just looking forward to him doing what he was going to do to us. And this guy goes on, and, you know, they wanted him to hurt the right people. Now, he doesn't go on that, what I'm saying. He says they wanted, they believed he would kick immigrants out and he would crack down on crime. Now, those are two things that are clearly have to do with race, clearly. Restoring traditional marriage. That's homophobia. But if they couldn't be happy, this guy writes, at least all the less deserving people would get theirs. That's how he sees it. And I think there's, I do think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, oh, Barbara writes, as Gomert continued his banging, uh, preventing this guy from reading his statement, Democratic members asked that leadership call the sergeant at arms and expel him. You know, this is where Nadler strikes me as just, he's he's weak. There's just, I mean, a strong chair would have removed him. I think, and a strong and 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 I can't believe that he didn't tell Jim Jordan to just move out of my face. But Barbara writes, uh, Representative Steve Cohen, a Democrat, asked Nadler <coughs> to please have Gene Krupa removed. For those of you who don't know Gene Krupa, he was a famous drummer of uh, another era. Um, yeah, but I, I just don't see any, uh, any laugh in, in what I saw. It was frightening and appalling, really. Okay, and here's one more. I got two questions here. Bayer. Uh, Bayer is going to pay more than $10 billion. They used to do aspirin, but then they, of course, bought up Monsanto, which does poison. Uh, Bayer is going to pay more than $10 billion. It is agreed. This is to settle tens of thousands of lawsuits uh, brought by people who say that Bayer's or Monsanto, but now Bayer's, Roundup herbicide gave them cancer. So here's a fascinating thing Bayer is paying more than $10 billion to people who say their cancer was caused by. Roundup, and meanwhile, Bayer is going to continue to sell it and not even have a, a warning on it. 
and it's legal. I something's wrong with that set of facts. If you pay ten billion because your product gave people cancer and the government continues to allow you to make it and sell it, I I don't understand. Uh, Some of these cases before got to a jury, and my God, juries were awarding millions upon millions of dollars to these plaintiffs. Shareholders freaked out because they were losing money. And somehow Bayer now has settled this, thinking it'll come to an end. I don't even understand it. I wouldn't touch that stuff with a 10-foot pole. It's still out there. People use it. You see people use it. I, somebody said to me the other day, why don't you put some Roundup on this? I have a brick terrace, and there's always you know, weeds growing up. And I pluck individual weeds with my fingers. Takes forever, but it gives me something to do. And why don't you use Roundup on that? And I say, are you kidding me? Here, now, one of the reasons I wouldn't is because when you spray that poison, you are killing more than the thing you want to kill. You're killing life underneath there that you can't even see. You're killing all those little scurrying ants who are busily living their lives. You're killing the worms underneath there. You're killing, killing, killing. I cannot believe people so blithely use this crap so that they can what? Have a green lawn with no weeds in it? Big effing deal. Where are your priorities? Excuse me. I'm doing a rant. I'm going to end on this. You know, they say there's going to be some baseball, which I find extraordinary. But the players and and the owners have agreed they're going to do a little truncated 60-game season without any fans in the stands. And they've instituted all kinds of safety protocols so that the uh, players don't infect each other. Um, I mean, there's just tons of stuff. Uh, they'll be tested every other day. Uh, they have to wear masks in the dugout and in the bullpen. Uh, there's no more saunas or communal food, uh, to be had in the, you know, in the, in the, um, locker room. Um, any, any player or manager who leaves their position to argue with an umpire or come within six feet of an umpire or an opposing player will be ejected. Any ball that has been in play or touched by more than one player will be replaced. Players are told to keep at least six feet away from one another. 
Well, you can't do that if you got somebody on ba- the catcher, and the, I, I don't know. But they're really trying. And the funniest thing I've read of new rules is that in Major League Baseball this season, there will be no spitting, no sunflower seeds, those get spit, and no chewing tobacco. All of those things deal with the spitting and the constant chewing that goes on among players. Part of the part of the only thing they got left is grabbing their crotches. I mean, I, I what? I mean, that's a baseball. They can't spit. And I don't see here what they if they do spit, what that means. I mean, if they'll be uh, disciplined in some way, but no spitting in baseball. Well, then how is that even baseball? Okay, one more thing and then I got to go. I happened to watch a movie last night. I, I And I want to recommend it. It's not for everybody because I have to admit, um, I had trouble sleeping. <laughs> it stayed with me. But wow, you want a thriller? What's interesting about this movie is it takes place almost the entire, without a doubt, almost the entire movie. I will say that, except for the very, very, very little beginning. It takes place in the cockpit of an airplane, of a jet, of a passenger jet. It, the entire movie, you are in the cockpit. Now, there are not a lot of movies that would dare to try to hold an audience's attention in such a confined space. The one movie I can think of like it is Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat. And the entire movie is set in a in the lifeboat after the ship they were on was sunk. But at least that's in the open. I mean, at least there's an ocean there. This is in this dark cockpit. And it was my it was enthralling. It's called 7500. I don't know why. 7500, if I think about it. I'm sure I will know. It's Yes, and it's about um, a hijacking. 7500, it's on Amazon Prime, if you um, can get that. And I guess at a time when we're all feeling more claustrophobic or we've gotten more used to being confined ourselves, um, maybe that's what made it doable. I'm not sure, but I really felt, I mean, usually when I'm watching a movie, I'm also like restless and doing other things and 
messing around, getting up, walking around. I stayed planted for this. So I'm just telling you, if you want to watch something and you have access to that, uh, it's the numeral 7500-7500. Really, really good. Okay. So I think that's all I uh, had. Thank you very much. And uh, God knows what the world will be like when I talk to you again on Monday. God help us all. Keep your heads down. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.